The fun is in the beginning, the start, the ideas, the seeds. That is where Altari Ventures plans to thrive. B2B SaaS, B2B FinTech are close to the heart of founder Anna Garcia. Anna has a solid background in finance that prompted her to become, among other things, an angel investor, and then a venture capital leader who looks at seed stage investing for a major source of her inspiration. Anna, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Kevin. Really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. You bet. So before we get started, let's give the listeners a background on you and Altari Ventures and how you ended up at this point in your career. Yeah, absolutely. This is obviously a topic that I'm very excited to be talking about this particular mo- at this particular moment because I just did a first close on Altari uh, a couple of weeks ago. Congratulations. And, uh, thank you. When, when people say congratulations to me at this point, I typically say it's just the beginning. Yeah, and now we're getting started, right? Now, now we're getting, getting started. started. No turning back. Not that I was planning on it, but this is really <laughs> a milestone that I'm certainly proud of, but also I think in this um, market environment that we've all been uh, witnessing in the last few months, um, it is maybe even more meaningful than it would be in other times. So I am excited and um, happy to tell you a little bit of the backstory. So my background, as um, you've seen and, and shared, uh, is really venture capital and financial services before VC. Before I was a software B2B investor, I was a practitioner on Wall Street for many years. And uh, those two pieces of my career have really informed what my next step was going to be with Altari. And it informed, I think, the experience in a couple of ways. First, it's obviously the themes that I know and find the most interesting from the investment standpoint. It's also just uh, the relationships and the networks that I've built during these periods of time and uh, how these networks have contributed to my ability to be a successful investor. And uh, that actually applies to everything from sourcing deals to vetting deals to eventually helping portfolio companies um, hopefully get some meaningful introductions and uh, everything that goes along with that in a portfolio scenario uh, of a venture fund. So um, what does that really mean in practice? You know, I talked kind of in, in, in big terms, um, big sort of high level framework. But in practice, my fund is focused on B2B SaaS and uh, B2B fintech early stage companies. I define that as post product companies, and typically they are pre seed to seed. I hesitate sometimes uh, to use the names of rounds because the nomenclature has been very fluid in in the recent years and you know whatever was a seed a few years ago may mean something different today so yeah, but very in, much so yeah it, it, in in today's market this this is what it is and so I've always loved early stage while I was transitioning from Wall Street to venture I started uh, as an angel investor and built a very successful portfolio in 2014-15 and that portfolio has now gotten to a point of maturity where you know I can talk about it and, and point to some of the success, successes in there. And I've always had a soft spot for this particular stage. So I've also learned during the last few years at my last fund, which was Runway Venture Partners, and it invested in post-seed B2B 
SaaS companies, that flexibility was really key. You know, a stage that may seem super opportune at a given point in time may experience some changes, new players may come in and maybe it gets the opportunity set gets redefined. So I've decided for Altari to really take a more flexible approach to to that. And that's why I talk about post-product company and generally pre-seed to seed, but I'm trying to keep a flexible view on that. So the flexibility I think is key to early stage investing in general. You know, I think you have to be able to respond to patterns that are emerging and new. And obviously you can't do that if you're set in your ways. And I think it applies to also the stages and, and themes and, and the types of approaches that you may not have contemplated before. It is also something that makes investing at this stage and in these verticals very exciting, at least to me and I'm sure to a lot of investors who play in this space. Anna, yeah, I can't agree with you more. I think the energy that you see from those pre-seed companies or even seed stage companies is, is really neat to see the founders of those companies so excited about what they're doing. And uh, some of them have a lot of experience in their industry and some don't. And it's really fun to see, that especially the people who don't make the new connections, make the new realizations and new relationships to help them move their companies forward. Um, with, with that said, you've talked a lot about your Previous firm, Runway Ventures, was post-seed. You are now a pre-seed seed investor. Give us just a rundown on just how different that is and, and what are the challenges of being a pre-seed seed investor, especially in today's market? Yeah, very good question. And I also just want to bring it back to my angel portfolio. So the angel portfolio that I built was actually pre-seed and seed. So it is very much connected to some of the earlier experiences, maybe not the last fund, but a little bit earlier in my professional career, I was very much at that stage and I've always loved it. So that some of the differences are really, I think, in large part in nomenclature and how we choose to apply it. So um, when we started Runway, post-seed was very much an abandoned space. There were seed funds, there were Series A funds, and Series A had ballooned to become eight to $10 million rounds that we know today at a time where seed rounds hadn't really caught up yet. And the reason that happened was because a lot of institutional money poured into alternative investments, specifically mm -hmm. venture funds. And so once a fund gets larger, they tend to invest larger checks into companies as opposed to disproportionately increasing their portfolio. So that just caused that drift in the size of the Series A. And so our observation about the market was that post-seed companies often were, there was no post-seed as, as a category. Yeah. And those companies sometimes ended up orphaned. You know, they were too early for Series A and they their seed backers didn't have enough reserve to continue to support them. Mm -hmm. So we felt there was an opportunity to step in and actually facilitate funding for some of these deserving companies and actually serve a purpose in the venture space as opposed to being yet another this fund or that kind of fund. So, but what happened over the last few years was that the later stage investors got a lot more comfortable reaching down <laughs> and seed funds learned to reserve more 
anymore. And so I think the conversions of all those different parties at stages that were maybe a little bit under the radar caused more competition and essentially another market shift. So it became that post-seed became its own stage. So with that background, I do want to say that there are some differences. So what we were looking for at at the post-seed stage was essentially a company that's proven a bit more traction and a bit more of a product market fit than a typical seed company. And maybe they just haven't scaled up revenue quite to the point where Series A fund would get interested. And so they just needed a little bit more time. So it was a relatively de-risked set of metrics versus a seed or pre-seed certainly. And uh, just continuing to establish that repeatability was going to get them to, to the next step. And for that, we wanted to fund them with, with capital to, to do so. So when you're investing at a pre-seed to seed stage, you definitely have less of those metrics. And sometimes, you know, like I always invested at post-seed in companies with revenue and with anywhere from a handful of customers to dozens of customers, depending on which market they were serving. If you're looking at a pre-seed company or even a seed stage company that has just rolled out the product, maybe they have a few early adopters, maybe they have a bunch of pilots going, maybe they have some other forms of engagement with the, the organizations that they're selling to, but it is not yet in that fully repeatable bucket. I think that is one big difference. And the other difference is that part of the diligence process for us at the post-seed stage was to talk to customers. Mm. And oftentimes, you don't have customers to talk to in uh, an earlier stage company. So that is definitely a material difference. So you try to find other ways of validating this. And I think that's where the network plays an even greater role where you can tap into the industry channels and get opinions and perspectives from those, those network members. And that can help validate or perhaps dissuade you from um, whatever assumption you were making. That I think exists to some degree at the later stages as well, of course, but it may be the primary source of validation for the earlier stage companies. So those are maybe some of the differences, but there's a lot of commonality in terms of what you'd be looking for. You know, it's still very much about the team. It's very much about the large market, about the di differentiated product and uh, a variety of other metrics that uh, typically VC funds would, uh, would be contemplating. And I would say, just from the investment management standpoint, the one benefit of looking earlier is that you can come in at a more attractive price point and typically get a little bit more ownership than what you can get at even the post-seed stage. Well, Anna, thank you for sharing that with us. The you know One of the things we often talk about amongst ourselves is where do small managers glean any type of advantage in the venture capital space. And most of what we hear is what you just talked about. It's the network that you have spent years building. It's the people that you have to go to when there are no customer validation points available. Is there anything else in, in that set of advantages that you believe you have being a small, newer manager in the venture space? 
Yeah, I, I think one of the um, key differentiators of smaller managers is actually the word that I've previously brought up is, is the notion rather is flexibility. I think as a smaller manager, you can definitely make adjustments much faster and especially at the early stage, you are able to write smaller checks without any negative implication for your overall fund performance because that is basically your mandate. You know, you're writing in, uh, relatively small checks into relatively small rounds. I think it's a very difficult thing to do for larger funds because as I said earlier, they typically with more capital tend to end up large, writing larger checks. And it's hard to deploy a, a large amount of, of capital. You can be a bit more selective, I would say, as an earlier stage, smaller manager. Of course, you know, the flip side to that argument would be that you probably encounter a lot of companies that may not have the survival, you know, uh, mm -hmm. experience as, as um, some of the later companies that have proven out a lot more. But I would say that on a portfolio basis, it is far more attractive to be writing a greater number of smaller checks. So you have less capital at risk in each of those companies, but your upside is actually quite substantial in each one of those positions. So I like that profile a lot more. And I think that flexibility to adjust as needed is one of the big advantages that uh, small managers have. So you're not under that constant pressure to write a very large check into one company after the next after the next i think at a certain size it's just hard to not invest in the index if you will so so that would probably be something that i would point out great and then in terms of location you are in new york city we know that silicon valley is if you were to look at a map of the solar system is the sun in terms mm -hmm. of size and everything else is a planet uh, new york probably jupiter and mm -hmm. then of course we're here in austin there's a large venture capital presence here. What is your take on East Coast versus West Coast versus elsewhere in the venture world? Yeah, it is um, It is really interesting because when I started getting involved in the startup ecosystem here in New York, it was still emerging. I think we were in the first wave of developing these the success stories that we now can look to um, in, 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 uh, in our local market. And uh, it's remarkable what has happened. New York is very firmly the number two venture capital ecosystem now. And I definitely think that a lot of progress has been made in terms of both building up the capital network as well as the entrepreneurial and talent network here in New York of people who are now on their second and even third startup. So no question that there are philosophical differences between how the East Coast and the West Coast VC approach investment. Yeah. And, uh, I think on the West Coast, it is very much about don't worry about capital. People are most concerned about not missing the next big thing. And in New York specifically, I think a lot of the questions relate more around, um, relate more to um, how do you build a healthy business? How, what are your, what yes. are this, what is the set of milestones that you are trying to get to that are not the next funding round? <laughs> so I think there, this has always been a very different uh, approach between the two coasts. And I don't think that 
one is necessarily perfect and the other one is flawed. I think they're just coming from different places and different uh, mentalities. But we definitely, I'd say, are more conservative in New York when it comes to actual metrics. And I do think that in uh, downturns that we potentially are heading into one uh, potentially now, there definitely is more focus on those metrics. So I think for East Coast VCs is probably going to be less of a adjustment and actually not VCs so much, but companies backed by companies because yes. we've always been asking these questions. And I think on the West Coast, there might be a little bit of a harsher adjustment in terms of uh, what they need to focus on going forward. But I do think that there are definitely emerging ecosystems. I would say Austin being an interesting example because there's certainly capital there to some degree now, but I'd say the entrepreneurial ecosystem is far ahead of the capital ecosystem. And it's not unique I'd to agree. Austin. Yeah. Um, so it, partly it's natural. And the reason I, I'm observing this is um, I know entrepreneurs in your local market. And I also have talked to entrepreneurs from that market over the past years to basically, they, they were looking for funding. So we they were talking to us and they were talking to people on the West Coast. And so I think there's still some catch up that needs to take place. But at the same time, it may not really ever catch up exactly. So it might just be kind of fluid and continue to evolve. I do think that as companies in each local market are successful with their exits, I think those entrepreneurs go and give back. And the way they give back is through mentorship, through investing, whether it's angel investing or setting up their funds. So I think it's just a matter of time until that um, starts happening more and more in the markets that are kind of behind uh, New York. But overall, um, I, I, that's definitely been my observation. So, yeah. Well, you brought it up, so I'm going to talk about it. The uh, <laughs> the quote unquote looming recession. So we're we're staring at a bear market in the public markets. How does that translate into, or how does that affect capital flows, more specifically in your part of the private equity venture capital world? Believe it or not, and I know you believe it, that uh, I've been talking about this a lot with my perspective LPs. So. A couple of things that I bring up to, to, to folks thinking about these matters. Naturally, if you are in any way allocating tactically between different asset classes, it is much harder to justify adding on another risky asset in a time of uncertainty and, and downturn. If you think about venture capital as a strategic allocation, of course, it can't cut into your liquidity needs and everything else that goes with that. But if you are making a strategic allocation, I think it's a different thought process that people go through. And um, there is a difference between how an individual might look at this versus a dedicated pool of capital you yes. know, that's been raised for that. So Very so much so. So, so for myself as a fund, I'm beyond excited to be um, standing here kind of with some capital in hand, waiting for these opportunities because some of the better, the, the most, I guess, financially sound companies are born during difficult times. And uh, of course, I don't wish for a recession and all the 
negative implications that that may have for a prolonged period of time. But if you look historically, and I'm sure you've done with with your portfolio um, expertise and analysis, um, if you look at those periods, uh, certain asset classes just perform better. And uh, venture capital tends to be one of those asset classes that is not super correlated to today's public markets. You can argue if it's because it's just not marked to market every day, but you know there's some element there that is just, I think, more fundamental, that it's not managed to short-term uh, results. It's really managed to a very long-term and strategic growth goal. And I think that shows up in the performance and the correlation and the fact that some of the companies that are born, like I said, during recessionary times are actually much healthier in terms of their capital spending patterns, they're much more responsible. Also, they benefit from the fact that a lot of resources become more affordable. We've been in the hottest job market mm-hmm. for the last couple of years, and finding talent for a startup company has become almost prohibitively expensive. <laughs> so, and it, and it's expensive on both fronts. It's the salaries themselves and and pay packages that they need to offer. But then there's also recruiting fees have probably doubled because oh, recruiters yeah. are overwhelmed and they will only work on a project if essentially, um, you know, you, you, you pay a much higher price to get their attention. So those types of dynamics tend to go away in the recessionary periods. And I think talent and some of the other resources will become more affordable. So I think that's very positive for startups that are trying to kind of very responsibly, like I said, spend their capital and find the, the best possible resources, um, but but also um, not overpay a huge amount, continue to just manage their, their, their business very tightly. So I think that is very interesting. At the same time, we have valuations that typically adjust. And so all of that kind of goes hand in hand. So as an investor, I'm very excited about that combination because I think I will have the opportunity to invest in companies that are healthier financially. And these are going to be companies that are more deserving of uh, capital because there's just a lot less noise. And I'm going to be able to invest at a more reasonable price, uh, which really which really means that I'm going to be able to get a little bit more ownership for the check size that I'm going to write. And that matters, obviously, venture capital is an ownership game in the end. And so those are the pieces that I actually think position investors like myself and um, other types of market participants in the earlier stages specifically for a very productive couple of years. We, We know that capital is available given the exit activity in the last uh, couple of years. And last year was a blowout year in that Mm -hmm. sense, uh, as well as just fundraising by later stage funds. So we know dry powder is there. So that will need to get deployed. And I think it's just going to result in a much more selective market from the VC side. It's going to motivate much healthier businesses to be born and they're going to be priced in a much more realistic way. So that overall, I think bodes very, very well for this particular asset class. Yeah, I think we've talked about that in the past, you and I, about the pendulum of the valuation swinging away from the founders and back towards the capital at this point in time. 
also with that said, it was an interesting statement that I heard and really wanted to give you to, the chance to talk about what you're investing in, in your portfolio and why. And, and one, another peer of yours in the venture world said, companies that are reliant upon their software systems to run their businesses in a recession, those founders will pay the software bills before they'll pay their own mortgage. I mean, it's, it's the engine that runs what they do. I know that's not exactly the, the subset of, of businesses that you're looking at, but give us an idea of what you're looking at, what types of problems these companies are solving and why those companies are indispensable as they grow to the businesses they serve. Yeah. So in many ways, I agree with what you just shared. I I, I think I, I also invest in software, you know, so I, I think the ideal scenario is that these solutions are far from nice to have and very much must have for their clients that they solve persistent and urgent problem. And these are typically the types of solutions that end up running some part of the business where it is cost effective, it is efficient, it is compliant. And, and I guess there's so many other things that go along with that. Something where the human error basically and the human time and inefficiency does not enter. So for sure, especially in times when capital is tight or just, you know, you need to watch your budget. I think those are the types of things that really, really um, become indispensable for a lot of businesses. So how does that apply to my world? Well, like I said, I invest in B2B SaaS and B2B FinTech. So I know that there, there's some overlap here, you know, some B2B SaaS is, uh, so some B2B FinTech is B2B SaaS, but there's also some transactional FinTech, but overall it's all very much software and in some shape or form contributing to, to the business. So within those umbrellas, I really am very interested in taking the broadest definition to FinTech. And for me, some of the most interesting buckets are data-driven uh, intelligence within a business. So that can apply to a, a variety of different um, aspects of, uh, of, of the operations. It could be something that is the CFO tech stack, where it's basically an all-around operating system for the financial function of a business and different aspects of that. The more comprehensive it is, I think the more efficient it is for a, a lot of businesses and there's more visibility into the parts that can and need to be addressed. And there's also a lot more data that's getting collected. Out of data, more insights are being derived that are actionable that the business can use to obviously optimize further. So I think that's a big overarching theme for different parts of, uh, of, of, of any organization and actually any size organization from midsize to enterprise. I do spend a lot of time looking at and thinking about capital markets and asset management technology. You know, those are some of the uh, industry sub verticals that I spend time in personally as a, as a professional. And I think that that is an industry that is relatively late to um, embracing cloud and just a lot of the obvious things that I think many other industries have been mm -hmm. on board Very with. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, and post uh, the uh, pandemic adjustment that uh, we all had to go through, I think 
this part of the industry has woken up and it is very exciting that they're looking at solutions across the board from something very basic that is still digitizing their product offering to everything that has to do with data collection and data management and analytics to maybe some of the more cutting edge implications of decentralized uh, infrastructure pushing onto the centralized infrastructure and how do yeah. they adjust and prepare for that. And so that actually leads me to the next theme or the last theme I was going to mention as kind of a big one is this convergence of the two uh, systems, you know, centralized and decentralized. And in the end, the change, the transition is underway and we are going to be living in a hybrid world for a relatively long period of time because it's not going to be an overnight okay now everything's DeFi and you know we no longer need banks and we no longer need you know centralized sort of regulators and and regulatory framework and whatnot so it's all going to be a transition and um it but it is happening and that is the interesting part so along the way there are going to be a lot of businesses that i think are going to address the different challenges of this interoperability of the two worlds and uh that's something i'm paying attention to I, i'm not investing directly in crypto or tokens or sort of other very clearly only blockchain businesses. I'm still yeah. looking at blockchain as a, a software. And if businesses want to buy solutions based on that technology, that's great. Let's you know think about that in the context of still building a business. But it is very, very interesting to me what, uh, what is happening and how the world is changing. Yeah, I think the DeFi movement is beyond fascinating when you look from a top down at a very centralized monetary system. And I, I remember watching a gentleman on a panel one time and, and someone said, you know, the, the crypto bros, they were very anti-crypto. The crypto <laughs> bros that they don't like, they don't like rules and they just want to, they just want to make up their own rules. And he very quickly corrected this person and said, it's not that we don't like rules. It's that we don't like rulers. <laughs> And he said, we, we don't want this power to consolidate. We want it to be managed through a certain set of rules in, in a more open system. And I thought that was a fact. It made me think about many things even beyond money, but that was a very fascinating statement in, in the way he put it, is that the rules and the structure is there. And it's, it's allowing people not to have to operate under a ruler at some point in time. Yeah, because partly what that's getting at is actually power and control mm -hmm. you know what is DeFi? it's basically an alternative system that yes it uses blockchain kind of a, a, as the underlying technology to manage financial transactions but really it is an infrastructure that removes control from financial institutions Maybe not fully, but it certainly reduces that control uh, yep. and maybe de-emphasizes certain things that historically banks have leaned into, the trust factor and whatnot. And uh, I, I think it's also making those financial services and products a lot more accessible. So the control can mean a lot of different things and accessibility is actually one of those things that that control affects so those are those are all very interesting dynamics i think for uh for how and 
in which direction, and probably it's multiple directions at the same time that this can go in. But ultimately, I think several decades from now, we're going to be looking at a very different world. I don't think we're going to be looking at a super different world in the next two to five years, um, but uh, but it may be very accelerated after that. Yeah. Well, I know we're we're running short on time and you are extremely busy and I want to thank you again for joining us. But if you were to give the listeners one area of this fintech B2B SaaS world that you believe is very overlooked and is going to have a significant impact on the financial or the B2B fintech area in the future, what might that be? Well, one is really tough. <laughs> you know, I mentioned a couple of a couple of them already. I will say that from the investment side, I really believe that the asset management and capital markets world is overlooked. There is little appetite for, I think, generalist investors to spend the time figuring out the fin piece. And uh, it is much easier and more familiar to just focus on the tech piece. And I think the things that the themes and the sub themes that are heavy on the fin end up uh, encountering a lot of challenges with, I think, uh, just general investor conversations, because the pushback is typically long sales cycles. And that is all mm -hmm. true. But I think part of it also is underestimating some of the just network effects and like certain things that actually once you're in, it becomes a very, very different experience within the financial services world. And if you have the right people doing it with the right expertise and the right credibility, I think it's very, very productive. So I personally believe that that's a space that as a VC investor, I can find some really good opportunities in. And um, outside of that, I would say one thing that I'm really interested in and I don't know that it's overlooked, but I would say it's evolving, is the spread of fintech into industries that are historically non-financial. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some of examples there might be embedded finance that we've talked about on and off. Um, and, but, but I think it's a bigger movement. I think there's a lot more that is getting changed and maybe it's happening without our full awareness. I think in, in general, it's, it's really under the umbrella of convenience. A lot of things mm -hmm. that are financial and transactional that are becoming more frictionless, not fully frictionless, but as we're removing that friction, they're becoming embedded in other parts of our uh, world, you know, whether it's how we live, work, shop, you know, interact. But I think it's just really interesting. And that's an area that I'm paying attention to a lot in terms of where some emerging trends might come. What does that look like beyond the obvious? For sure. For sure. Well, Anna, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We look forward to the success of Altari Ventures and seeing all the things that you're going to do to change the world, especially in this B2B uh, fintech space. We're really looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.sinaceracapital.com. 
CNSERA Capital is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where CNSERA and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All information has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability, or completeness of, or liability for, decisions based on such information, and it should not be relied on as such. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. These documents may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.